morning, good afternoon, and good evening, according to the time and place you listen to us at this moment. My name is Armando Conte, and you are listening to the series Governance in Africa, Conversations from the Center of African Studies at the School of Oriental and African Studies, part of the University of London in the United Kingdom. This program is a part of the Governance for Development in Africa initiative funded by the Moore Ibrahim Foundation. The initiative aims to enable Africans to improve the quality of governance in their countries by supporting them to develop skills and talents within an expert academic environment. The focus is to study both the legal aspects of governance and the relationship between governance and economic development. Today we have in the studio Professor Stephen Chang with us. Dr. Chang was awarded an Order of the British Empire, or OBE, for services in Africa to the higher education. Stephen Chang is a professor of international relations at the School of Oriental and African Studies in the University of London. Professor Chang has published 27 books on international relations on Africa's governance and leadership and a large amount of academic papers on the subject. Professor Chang, can you describe in more details what your definition of good governance is? I think my definition of good governance has got much more to it than just holding elections, for instance. You have a number of approaches to governance that try to centralize elections. I think that they're very, very important. But increasingly, African governments are using elections to cloak uh, their dominance over the citizen body, uh, using elections as an excuse to continue as they were before. I think that the institutions within government and the institutions of civil society are vitally important. They've all got to be strong. But of all of the institutions that I think are available, I think that the constitutional availability of a good judiciary that is able to arbitrate in terms of law between the citizens and government, that's the most vital aspect of governance to me, the most vital aspect of government becoming governance is that the government is prepared to subject itself to this kind of judicial scrutiny and not try to interfere with it. When that happens, I think you've got two things. I think you've got a guarantee of a certain maturity in government that is seriously contemplating good governance. And you've also got for the citizen an end to arbitrariness. The citizen knows what are the legal limits, but also what are the legal rights. Uh, without that transparency and lack of arbitrariness, modern life in a responsible manner for a responsible citizen within responsible government becomes impossible. So for me, good governance embodies the best institutions of government, but also that the government is allowing itself to be scrutinized and itself to be judged by an independent body of judges obeying a transparent constitution. Help us to understand two components of the governance. Defining justice throughout a constitution and administrating justice through a strong judiciary. How do these two components interact and what happens if they falter, if they really clash? 
if they clash or if they fall apart, then I become very, very pessimistic indeed. You can't have courts, for instance, making up the law. Uh, the law that is adjudicated within the courts has got to reflect constitutional provision. So you've got to have a clear, you've got to have a modern, you've got to have an embrace of constitution that allows rights to people. Now, in fact, Africa should be very proud because in South Africa, you have what I think is the world's most progressive constitution. It's a model to every other constitution in the world. It's far more progressive, in my opinion, than the American constitution in the rights and the equalities that it gives to citizens. When citizens know that they are treasured by government because government trusts them through the constitution to enjoy certain freedoms, then you have a cooperative regime where governance becomes possible with both the institutions of government on the one hand and also responsible citizens on the other hand. In between these two, the role of judges becomes absolutely pivotal. I would say that an independent judiciary with high-class judges, now this becomes a key question, of course, but good judges make all the difference in terms of how mature a country is, how well-governed it is, and how much the citizens believe in that government. When you have belief and responsibility, you have the preconditions for governance. You have uh, written so much or so many things about African leaders and your writings are really uh, acclaimed, you know, worldwide. Um, for, you know, you've written about leaders past and present. Tell us about the intersection between leadership and governance. Uh, can a leader stifle even the strongest governance uh, structure? Yes, uh, I think they can. I mean, you've got the personality cult uh, still in Africa, but also in many other countries. North Korea, I think, is the prime example right now. So it's certainly not just an African uh, problem. But you get the idea of the strong personality being triumphant over good government, good institutions, a good constitution, and a good judiciary. When that singularity, when that emphasis is on a single person, and when that takes hold, then I think you've got a major problem. And I think that it's a matter of maturity when African countries manage to move away from that kind of very, very narrow, personalized approach to how a country is run. When you look at the track records in Africa since independence of extremely powerful single figures who are presidents for very, very lengthy periods of time, I can think of almost no example where there has been true progress and where there has not been chaos after that person has finally died. Mm -hmm. Give us a clear example of um, the, the states in Africa where you have economy booming, but the leader is not likable. Oh, the leader doesn't have to be likable. In fact, some of the best leaders are very, very unlikable. Uh, it's very, very important to be able to hate your president as well as love your president. And I think the president's got to be able to take both love and hate and certainly has got to be able to take satire. Uh, I think that political cartoonists and political satirists are a very, very necessary part of modern political life. Uh, so you don't have to love your president. However, the president has got to love the country of which he is the president, and love the constitution of the country 
of which he is the president. He's got to be able to respect the fact that the country which he leads, he does not rule it, the country which he leads is also a country where the citizens have got rights and he is able to respect them and provide for the citizens. When you've got that kind of care, it doesn't matter whether the president is likable, lovable, hateable, or whatever. The key thing is that he respects the institutions underneath him. Give us an example. Well, for instance, you've got personalized rule uh, in the whole history of modern Africa, but probably the worst example was that in Zaire, and now Democratic Republic of Congo, where I think President Mobutu so personalized and so centralized rule in himself and in his family and his own very, very small circle, that in fact the majority of Zairewa never knew what government was, let alone what governance was. And the result has been death, warfare, destruction, warlord competition, despoilation. Uh, you've got a country that is being torn apart even as we speak because this is the legacy of one man who was not able, despite his huge ego, to embrace a country as huge and with as many complex resources as Zaire or Democratic Republic of Congo. Uh, one person cannot embrace the complexities of modern life, let alone the complexities of development. But this temptation still seems to be there. And there seems now to be a very, very modern temptation of presidents who want to personalize all rule in them but who wish also to be seen to be creating institutions. Uh, so now you have the phenomenon of institutions being created, not for the sake of good institutionalized government, but so that the central president can have more and more avenues uh, to conduct patronage, uh, to be able to give, as it were, offices to people who support him. I think the key example of that right now is in Uganda, uh, where President Museveni has created, in what is quite a small country, 87 administrative districts. And effectively, he's created the world's largest federal structure in a country where that is completely unnecessary. It allows him to divide and rule even better than the British managed, but it also allows him avenues of patronage. It allows him to give political gifts to people. It allows people to squabble far away from Kampala. They're not plotting against him. Uh, the quarrels, the corruptions are localized. It's very cunning, but it's got nothing to do with good government. It's got nothing to do with good governance. It enshrines Museveni in power and allows him to continue without any challenge being able to be centrally mounted. In the meantime, in Ivory Coast, what happened is quite a phenomenon. While uh, Felix Ofet Banyi was a president, uh, he created an institution and a vibrant country with economy booming. After he died, something happened and the country now is ruined. Can you share with us what phenomenon, what happened in a situation like that one? You see, he was a very, very intellectual man, like Senghor. Uh, the founding president of Senegal was a very, very intellectual person. But I think that Hufwep Wanyi held on far, far too long. And when that happens, and you have a whole generation of people who want to be political leaders, uh, who have been frustrated because the old man has remained president for so long, it means that the institutions of government are no longer capable of adapting to different styles of leadership. 
so that his successors have not been able to imprint themselves on the institutions that are there because those institutions were adapted towards the character and the personality of one person. You can have too much of a good thing. Uh, I think that one of the key things that you've got to plan for, and businesses, business corporations plan for this all the time, they call it succession planning. The smooth running of a profitable organization always means that there's always another chief executive officer in waiting. This doesn't threaten the present chief executive officer. What it does allow him or her is the assurance that the company would continue even if he disappeared in a plane crash tomorrow. <laughs> Interesting. Now, African problems, it's always been with a finances, you know, our embezzlement, you know, funding's been missing, and so many kind of corruption. Now, given the definition you've just provided, how useful are indices like the World Bank Governance Index or the more Ibrahim Governance Index? I think there are many indexes or indices available today. It's become very fashionable to compile these indexes. Some, I think, are not very helpful at all. Like, for instance, of all of the indexes that are available, the one I have the least regard for is the Freedom House Index. Uh, that is so obviously serving a value system which comes out of Washington, D.C., and which represents those values which are embedded in American foreign policy. Some of those values are good, but it's wrong for one country's values to be imposed upon the rest of the world. Where you have indexes that are very, very good, then I do very, very highly rate the Mo Ibrahim Index. I think a lot more goes into that, much more consideration of different sorts of values and the weightings that you give to different sorts of values. Much more thought goes into that. So of all of the indexes, yes, uh, I like the Mo Ibrahim Index the best. Now, having said that, no index by itself can describe the complexity of what happens in African countries or in any single African country. On almost every single index, for instance, Botswana is number one. Uh, this is because they have regular elections. Uh, this is because uh, it's a plural party system. Uh, this is because there are parties that are able to speak in a very outspoken manner uh, in Parliament. Uh, the debate uh, seems to be possible. Uh, and yet the record uh, in Botswana itself, the record of freedom of speech, uh, the fate of the academic Ken Good, who was expelled uh, from Botswana, uh, even without publishing anything, but simply for giving a controversial seminar. Uh, that kind of freedom of speech is not always easily reflected in the way that you bring together an index. Uh, and yet what you have there is a contradiction. You have a democratic country in which there are restrictions. Now, how do you measure that? So the key thing is to accompany a good index with continuing good scholarship so that you don't have an index standing by itself, but you have a body of thought that accompanies the index. And I do think that what Mo Ibrahim is trying to do by way of encouraging scholarship, by encouraging deep study and deep debate on issues of African governance, that's the overall package that you need. So it's not just an index, it's a package which includes an index.
Good governance is a very wonderful and fine word, um, which by itself is uh, is a good is a thing that African countries really need. But is there any formula, a magic formula, for a, a country in Africa, yeah, or any country in the third world, to have a good governance? Is there anything that has to come first for a government to have a good governance for a country to have a good governance? Look, there's not a single successful country in the world, never mind Africa, never mind Asia, anywhere in the world there has been no successful country without respect for constitutional provision, without the building of institutions, and those institutions have got to be able to function in a transparent and increasingly efficient and effective manner. Without those things, the rule of law through the Constitution, institutions that provide for people, for citizens, rather than exist so that people can steal money, uh, those are two key requirements for any progress to take place in any country. Now, I think that what's happened in many African countries is the misuse of constitutions, the misuse of institutions. Now, this is not unusual. When you look at the early days, the first 150 years of the United States, for instance, there was a very great deal of corruption. Uh, people who are now uh, household names, their families, uh, their family names uh, come off the tongue uh, very, very readily. Uh, there is a very clear case to be made against some of these famous families that they began as corrupt business enterprises. Uh, in this country, in Great Britain, uh, just 200 years ago, you had to be a landowner in order to be able to stand for parliament. You had to be a landowner uh, enabled to be able to vote. So that the whole idea of ownership and political power went hand in hand. In both England and in the United States, they had to grow out of those very, very narrow uh, views of how government should be conducted. Now, Africa perhaps is going through a similar historical phase, but I think that that's too much of an easy get-out cause. Uh, you can't go through the same historical phase when there's the example of others who've come out of it and shown how desirable it is to come out of it. You can't have the luxury of saying we must make all the same mistakes and not learn from the mistakes of others. That's self-indulgent. You've got to take the best examples going and go for it in terms of trying to emulate those best examples. There is one phenomenon that African governance or African political uh, uh, um, governance is known for, where you have a son or daughter, in this case sons, replacing fathers. It's not always a good thing because of the economy and uh, led, in this particular case, led to civil war, led to bad corruptions. Is that good? I'm giving you an example of uh, Bongo in Gabon, for example, Yadema in Togo, Kabila in Congo, or Hassan in Morocco. So is that a good thing, a bad thing? Can you can you take us through it to say what's a good thing about it, what's a bad thing about a son replacing a father as a president of the country? Look, sometimes in some jurisdictions it works. For instance, outside of Africa, you can make a case that it's worked in a manner of speaking and say Jordan, uh, the Hashemite kingdom of uh, Jordan in the Middle East. But that's not a democracy. It doesn't pretend to be a democracy. Uh, that is a monarchy 
that is a quasi-feudal system which somehow seeks to exist in the modern age. When you have, as it were, no pretense at democracy, uh, but you agree that you are a monarchy, uh, then you have to behave like an enlightened monarch. If, however, you are meant to be a democracy, you can't have it both ways. Uh, you can't, as it were, use democracy to legitimize the fact that you are a dynasty. Now, having said that, in some uh, jurisdictions, uh, the sons have become presidents through legitimate means. Uh, for instance, the younger Kabila in Democratic Republic of Congo uh, had to win the presidency through an election in order to be legitimized, and the people overwhelmingly voted for him, even though he's not yet brought peace and an end of corruption uh, to that particular country. But he did receive a vote of confidence from the citizens of that country. Uh, similarly, you can say the same thing in Botswana, where the young David Soretsi Kama has won an election, even though his father was the founding president of Botswana, and many people would say that those presidents between the older Soretsi Kama and the younger David Soretsi Kama were simply keeping the seat warm for the succession. Even so, there was an electoral test, which was a legitimate and a valid electoral test. Uh, without that test, then dynasties, I think, are bad. Now, the key thing is not so much whether or not there is a son or a daughter in future years. Uh, we have to be gender neutral here, of course. <laughs> yes. Whether there's a successor that's part of the dynasty, but whether or not that person behaves as if he or she is a dynastic inheritor. If a president, whether in a dynasty or not, obeys the law and propagates the law and is fairly elected, then there's nothing wrong with it. If that person, because of his or her birthright, thinks that he's got unholy privileges over and above those of everybody else in that country, then that's a disaster. Now, final question. Um, you are an expert in, um, in the thing. Um, good governance in Africa. Uh, what's your prediction? In 10, 20, time, 20 years' time, um, is it something of long-term, is it something medium-term? Do you think African continent would ever have a good governance? And what do we need to have? Yes, I think that Africa will have good governance. I think Africa will have good governments. I do think Africa is going to develop. I think Africa is going to surprise a lot of people, particularly in the second part of the 21st century. Now, having said that, I think there's one thing that commentators and scholars often overlook. I do think that one of the preconditions that people don't talk about for good government and good governance is age. When you look at how young President Obama is, when you look at how young the three key leaders in British politics are, uh, you've got Ed Miliband, he's only 40, uh, you've got uh, Clegg and Cameron and Osborne, uh, they're only in their early 40s. Uh, when you look at even in China, 